thank you to our newest patron donors, Beth D., Karen H., and Gina F. If you haven't donated and love what you hear, you can go to our website at failforwardpod.com and donate there. I was unhappy. I was I, I wasn't doing what I was meant to do because I love salespeople so much and I love teaching salespeople. I love coaching salespeople. I love being in the trenches. And all I was doing was going to meetings. Failing. 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 I know. We talk about failure. Some battles you feel like you lost. And survival. Some battles you feel like you win. It's tough. I had to make some tough decisions. We've all faced failure, but what steps do we take to launch ourselves into success? I'm Sarah Brown. There is life, a blessing. achieve your dream, and then what we do with it. And this is Failing Forward. I am thrilled to introduce Jeb Blunt. He is a best-selling author, keynote speaker, and the CEO of Sales Gravy. And I had the privilege of bringing Jeb to Cincinnati. He spoke to my uh, day job sales organization, and I was just so impressed with Jeb. I emailed him right after, asked him if he would be on the show, and he so kindly accepted. So I want to welcome, I want to welcome you, Jeb, to the show today. Thank you, Sarah. I appreciate that. It's uh, always nice to spend time with you. Well, uh, first of all, you are always so uh, generous with your time with people. And so when Jeb came to Cincinnati, he was sick. He had You had laryngitis. And he had a dinner with our top performers the night before. And they all told me the next day that he spent so much time with them that he basically had no voice left over. And then he had to come and speak to 450 people. Remember that? That was true. <laughs> I do remember that. I know, because you were so interested in connecting with people. I love salespeople. I love salespeople. I, I will remember that for the rest of my life. You cared so much about them. I love them. I, I do. And and uh, and the worst thing that happened to me was laryngitis because I like to talk too. So I'm, you know, I've got this this horrible thing that I can't get my voice out. And I love to talk to people. I love to connect with them. And your people were so wonderful. And they were, you know, genuinely and sincerely interested in in talking about what they do and what they do. I think is is really powerful. They uh, they make sure that when you go to the hospital or 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 end up sick or whatever happens, that that there's someone competent there to take care of you. And and that's a that's a, a heck of a mission in the world. Yeah, it is. All right, Jeb, give us a little bit of background. Our listeners love to hear people's personal stories. Where did you grow up? Tell us a little bit about your family background. Well, I was the oldest of five children, and I grew up in a really great family. My dad's a lawyer, my mom a nurse, and I grew up in, in the country. So I grew up in a small town called Harlem, Georgia, and went to a small high school and went to a small college. I went to Augusta University. I uh, met my wife in high school, and we've been together ever since. Uh, we were um, we were prom king and queen, and we we never looked back. So I mean, uh, she, uh, and we uh, I. You know, I, I, when I was in high school, I, I started, I joined the yearbook essentially so that I could, I could meet my wife and I, cause there were, it was all girls on the yearbook and, and I figured I, you know, if I joined the yearbook, I'd have a harem. So <laughs> I joined the yearbook and we had to sell ads and they gave me an ad sheet and the quota was $300. And I went out in the street and met the first person and said, Hey, would you like to buy an ad? They said, yes. And they gave me a check and I like, I was like, that's sales crack. I mean, immediately somebody's giving me money and I couldn't get enough of it. So I just kept going one, to one place to another, another. And I, I sold, uh, you know, over $3,000 in ads for the yearbook 
And no one even came close to that. Oh they made me the, the editor of the yearbook because I sold so much. And I, I learned really quickly that if you can make it rain, people will give you more important things to do. And I just, it just was the thing that I was good at. And I tell people all the time, I'm really only good at two things. I'm good at horses and I'm good at sales. And that's about it. Do you think you were born with that skill, that talent? Uh, I, you know, I, perhaps, but I think that, I think it's, it's not so much that I'm, I'm born with the talent to sell. I don't think sales is a talent that you're born with, but I'm born with competitiveness. I'm born, I was born with optimism. So I, I don't get discouraged very easily. So when people tell me, no, it, it just, you know, it pushes me harder. And if you're a competitor, but what, you know, in your heart, like if you're born as a competitor, what happens is when you fall down or you get knocked down and in sales, you're, you know, you face a lot of adversity. So you're going to get knocked down a lot. You just have this thing inside of you that says, you know, if I can look up, I can get up. And what competitor, what happens to competitors when they lose or they get knocked down is they get pissed off. And that's what happens to me. Like you tell me I can't do something or I've, I fail at something. I hurt like everybody else. I can, I'll curl up in the fetal position and it will just, you know, I will, you know, I will be in, you know, just pain because I lost something. And I can remember pretty much every deal I've ever lost. I mean, I really, really, really hate to lose, but, um, but I just keep going and, and I have a really high need for achievement. And that, what I mean by that is like I always told my bosses that when I was in the corporate world, just give me trophies. You know, because they were like, are you motivated by money? I go, not really. I, I mean, I like money. Don't get me wrong. I love money and I like having a lot of money and I like all the things that money can buy. And I've always made a lot of money. Even when I was in my mid twenties, I mean, in the 1990s, I was making over $300,000 a year selling, which was way more than any of the folks that I graduated from college were making at the time, all my friends, my fraternity brothers. So, but I really liked the trophy. And it was the same thing with the yearbook. The thing that, I, that got me so hooked on sales was when I was sitting there and they asked me how much I sold and I, and I said, and everybody gasped in the room. Like that was the moment I was like, you know, I, like, I dig that. I love being on top. And, I, and so I'm the, I'm the salesperson that when a ranking report comes out, I'm always looking. Even right now on my sales team, I'm not number one on my own sales team, on my own company. Which is, which is a good thing, right? So I've got one of my top salespeople, it's just crushing everything. And I'm, I'm, I'm not even on the chart right now. And it, I, I have to send out the, the ranking report to everybody every week <laughs> to keep everybody focused. Yeah. And it makes me mad. I'm like, I'm not on top of that, you know, and, but I'm also the CEO of the company. So you, know, you have like, some other jobs too. So let me ask you a question about this because first of all, I loved the quote that you said, if I can look up, I can get up. And I think that that quote is that's wonderful for everything in life. I love that quote. And then the second thing that I wanted to mention was in the sales profession, I liked that you you said, I don't necessarily, it's not necessarily about money, but it's about the trophy. You've worked with thousands of salespeople. For salespeople, it can be about the money, the trophy. What else could it be about? Like what motivates other salespeople? And the reason I want to tell you the why I'm asking this is because I think sales skills is a skill that can be used no matter where the economy is. It's always a tool that we need. And I think people tend to think that salespeople have to be competitive, pushy, et cetera. So I'm curious, what do you think are the motivators for people as it relates to, to selling? Well, I definitely don't think people need to be pushy. I think competitiveness and assertiveness and you know the willingness to 
ask again or find another way along with some with some being reasonable I mean, you can't be delusional and successful at the same time so there's certainly no no reason to you know keep knocking on a door that is never going to open for you you need to move on to the next one and and sometimes salespeople uh, the competitiveness and aggressiveness that becomes attachment and and so they get so attached to winning Ooh. they lose rational thought so so that's when they start pushing on things because they have this desire to be right or desire to win. Uh, I focus on the world from a probability standpoint. So everything that I do is calculated based on what is the probability of this particular move on the game board. So that's important. But back to your question on what drives people, I'll just tell you a little story. So several, several years back, a company that I was working with, this, one of the sales managers grabbed me and a- asked me to talk to one of her salespeople. And she said, you know, Summer's got so much potential, so much ability, and she's just not, she's just not fulfilling uh, her potential. And maybe you could sit down with her and help her out. So whenever I, I sit down with someone like that and I coach someone, the very first thing I ask people is, what do you want? And typically when I ask that question, they just kind of look at me and go, huh? Because like, they don't really understand it. Mm-hmm because they're not used to thinking that way. What do I want? And, and, and this is especially true with, you know, with moms, especially, you know, salespeople who are moms and in, in, in Summer's case, a mom of three children, you know, she's serving her company, she's serving her family uh, and she's serving her community, doing some other things. And so she's not thinking about herself. Like, what do I want? Like, what's important to me? Yeah. And, and so we sat down and she gave me this, you know, this, this, this whole, a script about how she wanted to be a director of sales and she wanted to get promoted and want to do all those things. And, and this is hard. Like right now I can't see you, so I can't see your facial expression. So it would be difficult to discern this on a call like this, but I could see her. She was sitting right across from me and, and I could see that what, what she was saying, the words that were coming out of her mouth and her body language, facial expression, tonality, her eyes, they weren't congruent with what she was saying. And congruency is a really, really big deal when we think about whatever you're doing in life, whether it's sales or business uh, or taking care of your community or nonprofit. In other words, anything that you want, success is paid for in advance. And, and there's a price that has to pay, be paid. And if you are not willing to pay that price, then you're not going to get success. So you have no congruency. Congruency is an equilibrium between the price that you have to pay and what you, will, what you want. Basically, uh, what, what I told your group when we were together is, you know, discipline is sacrificing what you want now for what you want most. So when I'm sitting there talking to Summer, I'm like, you know, I, Summer, I was born at night, but not last night. And what you're saying doesn't, doesn't, is not resonating with me. What's, what do you really want? And it took like three or four rounds of this, like pushing her. And finally she came clean and she goes, what I really, really, really want is I just want to be financially independent. I don't want to have to worry about whether or not we're going to be able to pay our bills or we might lose our house or I want that level of security. And I love sales because it gives me flexibility. I'm a, I'm a mom. I've got these kids and, you know, I'm able to come home at night and I, that's what I really want. And I'm like, okay, great. Let's stop and let's build your goals, your plan around that because that's something that you're willing to pay the price for. You're willing to do these things to get there. So all we did was sat down and we just basically drew out like, what, what does financial independence mean? Because she had a number. There's a number on financial independence. What does, what does flexibility mean? What do you need to be flexible? What do you need to feel secure? What do you need for these things? And, and I got her to articulate it. And then we wrote it all down. I do these things called goal sheets with people. Yeah. We just wrote down a goal sheet. 
And we just took the goal, what she wanted, and we just articulated that back to, okay, this is what you have to do in your job. These are the numbers you have to hit, and this is what you have to do. And suddenly, like her numbers went through the roof. I remember her sales manager called me and was just stunned is probably not the right word for it, but she just called me and said, I don't understand. What did you do? Like, you've got to be some sort of like a Yoda or something because I couldn't get her to do anything. You helped her figure out her why, right? Yeah, exactly. Just what are you willing to give up to get what you want? And the problem was, as I explained to the sales manager, I said, you keep telling her what you want for her. Yeah. What does she want for herself? Yeah. But that happens to a lot of people. So, so for our listeners, I think, I think a lot of people, when they think about the word sales, they think that you have to like have this confidence. And I think it scares a lot of people. So what do you say to those people who might be thinking, I I think I would be good at sales, but I just don't understand it. uh, And I, I fear that I lack the confidence around it. What would you say to them? Well, I get that. And I guess the question would have to be is where does, where does the insecurity come from? Because insecurity is a disruptive emotion that impacts you no matter what you do in life. So, so you typically feel confident doing things that you've got practice at or that you know uh, or that you, you have some competency in. And so if you wanted to move into sales and you're getting into something new, it's pretty natural as a human being to feel a level of insecurity. Yeah. And insecurity is the opposite of confidence. So so I, th- I don't think that we can discount the fact that the most powerful emotional foundation for a sales professional is relaxed, assertive confidence. Hold on, I want to slow that down. Relaxed, assertive confidence. Yes, because relaxed, assertive confidence is a non-complimentary behavior when you're dealing with other people. And what I mean by non-complimentary is that most people, most people walk around the world with a level of insecurity. Most people do. And when you're dealing with a buyer, there's a level of insecurity because they don't want to be taken advantage of. They want to, they're, they're, they're obviously taking a risk to do business with you. So because we know that emotions are contagious and we know that because that's how human beings operate and there's a massive amount of science behind that and I won't bore you with it, but because emotions are contagious, human beings are essentially, we're just dropping vibrations into the air to other human beings who can, who can from those signals, know what we're feeling and know how to respond to us. When you're relaxed, assertive, and confident, people have a tendency to lean into you. Now, you notice I didn't say aggressive or pushy. Yeah. There's a difference, a big difference. Because relaxed, assertive, confidence is just, look, and for me, it's this, it's this. I know that I can help you. I know that what I do will change your business. I know that what my people do, my company does, I know that, we, that we're good for you. And oh, by the way, if I'm in a situation where I know that I'm not good for you, I'll tell you. So I have, I have enough confidence and I'm relaxed enough to say, Sarah, this is not the right solution for you. Let me find another company. Let me refer you to someone else who's a better fit for you. So if you have relaxed, assertive confidence, you're typically not going to be attached to the outcome, highly attached to the outcome, right? Bingo. That, and I, you just nailed it. So Sarah, that's, you know, that's, that's where relaxed confidence is born is, is letting go of the outcome. It doesn't matter what the outcome is. Now, this is a dual process. So don't get me wrong. Outcome does matter. So a dual process says I have to be empathetic, which is a meta skill of selling, uh, and I have to be outcome oriented. Now, the, now the, the science tells us that salespeople who are more outcome driven over time statistically will outpour, outperform salespeople who are more empathetic. Mm, okay. That's just science. That is, that is independent of any other, any other intervention, any other change. 
So because sales is about asking for a series of commitments along the way that gives that leads to an outcome. I mean, if you don't get an outcome, you're not selling. You're having friends. I mean, you can, I mean, you're having conversations, but you're not getting anything done. And sales is about outcomes. It, it will always be about outcomes. But if the outcome becomes everything, people don't want to do business with you because they know that you don't care about them. And the thing about human beings, when you're dealing with them in, in sales, the human beings you're dealing with are asking five basic questions of you. The first time I met you, this is the, these are the five questions you were asking about me instantly. The first question that your brain asks is, do I like you? Yeah. And, and you kept asking that question every time we, we met on the phone, then we met in person, and you, and you had to, to make sure that those two things were lining up. And you were looking at what I was saying, what I was doing, are those things congruent with what, um, what you're seeing from my body language uh, and my actions? The next question you're asking is, do you listen to me? Do you pay attention? And you'll notice that when we first met, we got on calls, and I asked you questions and shut up, and you talked. Yeah. And by the way, the more you were talking, the more important you felt. And that's the next question is, do you make me feel important? Because the need for significance is the most insatiable human need. We all want to know that we matter and we're appreciated. So as a salesperson, my job is to make you feel important. When I make you feel important, then you become more willing to advance to the next step with me because I'm giving you a gift. In fact, I'm giving you the greatest gift you can give another human being. And when you give people gifts, they want to do something for you. And for me, that's advanced towards an outcome. The fourth question that you're asking is, do you get me? Do you understand me and my problems? So if you remember the, the initial calls that we were having with your group, uh, and, and you may remember this a different way, but I was going around the room. I had, I had multiple people, multiple stakeholders on the, on the call, and I'm asking all the stakeholders, tell me about you, tell me about you, tell me about you, tell me about you. And in fact, you had one stakeholder that worked in a different division, the physician division, and I took her aside when we got to Cincinnati and spent some time with her, and all I did was listen. Because, because what I wanted to understand was your story, your language, your jargon, what's important to you, so that you would understand that I got you. And in fact, you said that to me after I walked off stage, like this, that really, that resonated. That was, that was, that connected with everybody because you listen and, and then finally it's trust. Do I trust and believe you? Right? So, so when we start thinking about attachment to outcome, you need to, you need to be focused on the outcome. And now this is, and this is so crazy because you have to detach from the outcome. In other words, the outcome can't be the most important thing. The, the empathy, the, the conversation, the listening to people has to be the most important thing. And you have to have faith that you have a system. And what I just described to you as a system, do I like you? Do you listen to me? Do you make me feel important? Do you get me in my problems? And do I trust and believe you that the system, along with human psychology, will, will take you to the next step as long as you're doing all those things. And remember I said, relax assertive confidence because it's the assertive part that's so important to people. I can have relaxed, I can be confident, but if I don't ask you to advance to the next step, I'm, I'm, I'm causing you to do my job for me. But if I ask you to, to advance to the next step before I've earned the right to do that by answering those five questions, then you're not going to be as willing to do that. So, so, so if you start thinking about it this way, when people come to me and say, go back to your original question, say, I'm really not confident selling, what I begin with is, is sales is a system. And if I can teach you the system, then the thing that you have to do, I can give you the pieces, but you have to have some faith. Like you have to, you have to, to just, like we have faith in anything else. You have to have faith that when you run the system, statistically speaking, over time, you're going to win more than you're going to lose. And you're not going to win every single time, sure. but you're going to win more than you lose. And then you can start filling in the, in the pieces. And once you understand how human beings work, 
because human beings are incredibly predictable. And once you understand how to, to leverage empathy and to become self-aware of your own emotions and to be able to respond to people the right way, whether you're on the phone, on a virtual call or, you know, in person, uh, that you, that you learn how to, uh, to ask questions the right way. When you learn that when you do these things that people are going to follow through with this, you know, and they're going to, they're going to follow you through the process, then it becomes a lot easier. Uh, but I, I wouldn't expect anybody who's new to sales to walk into sales and then go, wow, I'm completely confident. And I would tell you that if you did that, like if that was, if that was your personality, you know, here, hold my beer, I'm going to go sell something. You're probably going to fail uh, because, because you, you know, you're, you're, you've, you've replaced relaxed assertive confidence with arrogance and, and, and arrogance for most people is simply a total disregard for your audience. Okay. Was there ever a time that you thought, I'm going to get out of sales? Or did you always know that you wanted to stay in it? Oh, there was a time. <laughs> so Why? Uh, well, I, my, my father, who I love dearly, is uh, one of the most talented attorneys in the country. And in his day, he won lawsuit after lawsuit after lawsuit. Uh, he taught at Emory. He was, he was just known as one of the most brilliant legal minds to ever walk the face of the earth. And, and he does law the way I do sales. So his, you know, the way he thinks about law is, is just, it's, it's brilliant. And he's so good at reading people. And, and my dad's a little bit different than me. My dad's not a talker. So I'm a talker and my dad is not. So, uh, so he, uh, you would like you go on a trip with him when we were kids and you would, you know, you drive nine hours and you never say a word, <laughs> but we'd always get to stop and get a candy bar and a Coke. So we didn't so care. So it was good. Yeah. So, um, so, but I, you know, I always wanted to be a lawyer and, that, and I wanted to be a lawyer from the very beginning. And really? yeah, when I was in college, I got into sales because I sold my way through college. So I, you know, I, I, even though my parents could afford to pay for school, I asked them not to so that I could earn it my, on my own. And I, and I, so I, I worked and I went to school and I paid for my school. Now they gave me some help with some other things. My, my parents were, are very good people, but uh, it was important to me that I did that. Yeah. And, but I wanted to go, I wanted to go to law school. So it was always my dream. I got, I started working for a big company out of college and did very, very well. I got into sales. I got into operations with them first, got into sales, was, you know, hit all, all the, the records. I, I, and this is a fortune 200 company. I broke every company record, like hundred year old records in sales. And I did it multiple years in a row and, you know, chairman of the board, you know, I was feted. I was, you know, everything you can possibly imagine. I trophy, I still have a trophy case full of everything I won selling things. And, and then I got bored with it because I just, it got to the point where I could just almost wake up in the morning and work for a couple of hours and beat everybody. And, yeah. and it was, and I just learned, like I, and you talk about confidence. I just learned how to do it. I, I wasn't that way at first, but it, I figured out the system. And once I figured the system out, it was easy. Right. There wasn't, you said, you said at the beginning that you're very competitive. You probably didn't have as much competition. So you got bored. <laughs> I did. Right. I did. So, um, so, so yeah. So I went and I said, I'm going to go to law school. So I went and took the LSAT. I got accepted to law school and I quit my job. Oh, well, I went to quit my job. I told the company I was going to quit my job. My dad didn't want me to go to law school. He never did. He was, really? uh, he said, you know, laws change. It's not the same as it used to be. A lot of lawyers feel that way. A lot of lawyers after a while, they just, they hate law. And it's a, it's a really, really tough business to be in. Yeah. And there's, you know, it's just, 
it's just a tough business. So he just, he was just always in my ear. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. And which by the way is the opposite of me with my son. Cause I'm telling my son, get into my business, get in my business, get in my business. And he's like going the opposite way. Every time I say, come join me. He's like, no, I'm going to go do my own thing. So he, uh, I got, I got, I got accepted. My wife and I were moving. So I could go to law school. I went to my boss and I'm quitting. And the company that I work for like pulled out all the stops. What do you want? What do we have to do? What, what will it take to keep you? That's what they, I mean, basically said that. So I went to my dad and said, this is what they're, they're throwing at me. And I showed him the offer that they made me. And he said, you need to take that offer because you're, that's more money than, than most lawyers make, you know, that have been around forever. I mean, at the time, don't get, don't get, don't forget, I'm making about $300,000 a year. I'm selling. So I'm, I'm living large and, and I live lean. So I'm all that money was going to the bank, which is why I could afford to go to law school. And so he really just talked me out of it and said, go into business. And and that's one of those things, and I, you know, we're in, in the spirit of this conversation. Up until that point, I was conflicted. Yeah, because I was going to say, was that going back to your words? Was that incongruent with what you wanted? It it was. I was just, you know, it was that. Um, it was just that I had two forks in the road that I could go on. Yeah. And when I made the decision, and this was, I was twenty six years old when I made that decision. When I made the decision that I was going to stick with business. I never looked back. Like I never regretted it. I never said, I wish I did. I'm, you know, I'm one of these people. I wish I could live to 300 because I want to, I want to like do this for, you know, 50 years and then stop and then start all over again. I mean, I want to be a fireman if I could be a fireman. I mean, I want to do everything. So, but I, cause you know, then you can go into something and then master that or master something else. But I never looked back. Like that was the place where, um, as Yogi Berra said, there was a fork in the road and I took it. And once I took that fork, uh, I, I just never, I, I, that was the road I took and I, and I rock, I did, it was like a rocket ship through the corporate world when I was 26, well, I was 24 years old. I went to work for this company. I was driving a commercial truck for them. Uh, when I was 34 years old, I was a vice president of sales. So I moved really, really fast to the organization and took that path and, and never looked back. Now, no. I do know that you had shared though, that when at one point in your career, you did hit a bump in the road and some hiccups <laughs> and this is called okay. failing forward. And so, because everybody looks so good via Instagram and Facebook, right? Like our lives are perfect. But I think what connects us is that everybody does have struggles, but going back to your quote earlier that I loved, if um, I can look up, I can get up. Would you mind sharing that story of what happened there? And what, what was the blessing that came out of that? So I'm going to share the story and I'm going to do it in a, a transparent way. I'm going to, because of this call and in, in, in your audience and what you're looking for, and I'm going to probably tell you a couple of things I don't talk to a lot of people about. But when in my late 30s, I was uh, vice president of sales, uh, working for a company that I loved uh, and doing the job that I spent my entire career trying to get into. So I had, I had finally gotten the job that I wanted and it was the, it was like the greatest pinnacle of my life. And I lived uh, on a house on the intercoastal waterway in South Florida. I had a, you know, 42 foot, you know, you can call it a yacht if you want to, uh, boat that was uh, at my dock in my backyard. I got on the corporate jet. I flew all over the place. I, uh, I had a corner office in a big, tall building in Atlanta. I commuted to, I commuted to Atlanta to go to work. I had two assistants. 
I basically lived a rock star life. I, I flew all over the country every single week taking salespeople out to dinner, just like I hung out with your salespeople. I love salespeople. And I would take them to dinner, celebrate them, go to meetings, and then I would go home and I would do it all over again. And I, I realized that somewhere in the middle of that, and this is my late 30s, that all I was doing was going to meetings. Like I just went to meetings and I didn't really even do anything in the meetings. And one day, this is the most pitiful thing you've ever heard in your life because like anybody listening to this would say, like, this is the stupidest story. But I was, I, had, I was on my boat. I was out in Captiva Island and I had taken just a, a weekend off. I'd taken it up there and I'm, I'm parked in a marina. I'm in the most beautiful place in the world. There's no reason in the world that I should be even a little bit unhappy. Like I should be the happiest human being on earth. I'm so blessed. I have everything that you want, privileged. I mean, all the things that you would think of. And I just remember I was curled up in the salon, on the couch in the salon of my boat, and literally in the fetal position. And I realized just how utterly miserable I was. I was unhappy. I, was, I, I wasn't doing what I was meant to do because I love salespeople so much. And I love teaching salespeople. I love coaching salespeople. I love being in the trenches. And all I was doing was going to meetings. And all I was doing was shaking hands. I wasn't doing what I was meant to do. And I didn't really have an answer for it other than, you know, I just had to get up and, you know, and go back to work and suck it up and just do what I had to do because, man, I really good income. And I'm, I was like everybody else at the time, you know, I was, I was living large and things were good. And, and, and then, you know, it, it wasn't that, at that very moment, but I came along a little bit later down the road, we had this great recession, the, the global financial crisis, the worst financial, you know, roadblock that ever happened to me up until about right now. Um, but it's, and I remember when the wheels fell off that bus and I remember the wheels fell off this bus. So I know that, but it hit a wall and suddenly I was in a situation where it turned out that my company didn't need an executive who was commuting on a plane to Atlanta and flying around the corporate jet and taking people out to wine and dine and had two assistants. Like they had to downsize and they started looking at what was deemed non-essential. And, and, and I think that was part of the reason why I was so unhappy was that I knew what I was doing wasn't, wasn't worthwhile. Like I wasn't doing something that was essential. I was just a, a block on the corporate org chart that was just filling in a space. So they didn't fire me, but they did say, we need to find something else for you to do. And what we want you to do is in this city over there. I think secretly they knew I wouldn't take that job because we weren't moving to, to that city. Yeah. So I was faced with another fork in the road. What do you do? And the easy thing to do would be to have gone right back in the corporate world. In fact, I was interviewing for high-level CEO jobs. My goal at that time was to be a, a CEO of a Fortune 500 company. It was my overriding that everything I wanted was that, was that, was that job. I, I, started, I started interviewing for those types of jobs, and I was going to these interviews, flying out to see people, headhunters working with me. I was, um, I, was a, I was in demand, so it wasn't like you know, I, got, I lost my job and suddenly I didn't have any prospects. And uh, I, was, I remember I was... I was interviewing for a CEO job at a $750 million company, prime job. I was on my fourth interview. And in the interview, my, in my brain, I was like, I'm just, I'm just on a hamster wheel. I'm going through the motions here. I'm just going through the motions because that's what you do. You just go get another job in the corporate world. And what you're going to do, you're going to go back to meetings and doing all these things again. And I don't want to do this. And I got on the airplane after that interview. I was going to get that job. And, and it was big money, like huge money, more than I was making at the, the previous job. And I went home to my wife and said, I think I'm going to start my own business. And fortunately, 
Now, I'm not telling you this was easy because was sitting across the table from your wife saying, <laughs> hey, we have this much money we've been saving all our lives for our retirement. I'm going to use it all to start a business, right. part of which is building a website that I don't even know how to build. I mean, you can imagine that that was an easy, an easy conversation. And, and I made that decision. I, I, made, I made a burn the boats decision. And what I mean by burning the boats, in the corporate world, and, and, and I don't know if things have changed in the last 13 years, but at least at the time, and, and I believe this to be true in the corporate world, and I see big corporate world, the, where I was from, big companies, when you go out and you start something on your own, if you fail, it's really hard for you to come back because everybody's suspicious of why you did that. And by the way, if you go out on your own and you try something and you fail and then you want to get back in when you're interviewing, they're going, well, what, what, why, why wouldn't you try that again? Are you just coming here to get money and then you're going to go start your own thing? So I knew at that moment that essentially the moment that I started my own business, that I was instantly unemployable. And, or at least that's what my brain yes, said. Yes, because I would say, Jeb, that was not true in my case because they could have said that to me. But instead, I think if it's an entrepreneurial company and they know you and they like you and they trust you and they know your skill set, mm -hmm. they'd be like, man, come on board. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> that's probably true. But in my brain, like, you know, you know, in my brain, it was that. You know? I and get so, it. I totally get it. I'm burning the ships. That was 13 yeah. years ago. So, uh, and I, and I woke up you know, every day for three years. I mean, I would say every day, every night. I woke up every single night and I had this recurring dream that I was greeting people at Walmart. And I'm not saying that, that Walmart greeters are bad. Sure. They've gotten rid of most of them, but I'm, I used to love the Walmart greeters, but that was like, <laughs> a, you know, because I was so afraid of failing and having to go back and look all these people in the eyes because, you know, when you get out of the corporate world, people are looking at you going, because part of them, they want to be you. Like, they don't want right. to do it anymore. So they want that freedom. And part of them, you know, it's like, well, yeah, you're going to fail. And I knew that people were throwing stones at me. I wrote my first book. It was like, that's not going to be any good. You know, I'm, I'm, I've, my 12th book will be out in May. And, you know, that was 13 years ago. So 12 books in, in 13 years. So I started, you know, I started working through it. And I worked, look, when I worked so hard, I, when I was an executive in the corporate world, I thought we worked long hours. I mean, I would leave on Mondays, come back on Fridays. I thought that I worked really hard. For 13 years, I've worked harder than I ever worked in my entire life. Still do. It's a Saturday I'm working. I work tomorrow. I was at the office last night till 9.30. Uh, and, you know, I started at 6 and I do this pretty much every single day. Yeah. I, uh, I worked so hard, but I would work until my body hurt. I mean, I would, I mean, literally I would, I would just. So ache. how did you figure that out? How did you figure that out? Just like you, when we talked earlier and you talked to that woman um, and helped her go through the goal sheet, how did you realize that you wanted to start your own business? Did you have somebody that, that was like a coach? Do you have like a meditation practice? Like people, and I'm not giggling, I'm not making fun of that, but some people really <laughs> feel like, you know, I feel like, boom, I was called to do that. How did you know? Did you ever see the movie Rudy? Heck yeah. Okay. So the year before all of this went down, this actually the summer before all this went down, we had an, a, a big, big national sales meeting and it was my meeting and I had salespeople coming in from all over the country and I hired Rudy as my keynote speaker, just like you hired me as your keynote no speaker. And, and I always wanted to be a, you know, I, from the, from the early nineties, when I went to see Tony Robbins yeah. and, and Tom Hopkins, you know, and I, like, I always want to do that. I'd listen to Tony Robbins. Oh, I listened to his, like his tapes until I couldn't listen to him anymore. Same thing with Jim Rohn. So I wanted to do those things, Brian Tracy. And, and, and so he came in 
And I kicked off a, a speech called Power Principles, which was the first book I wrote. I, I had a speech called Power Principles by Power Principles, gave my speech and then introduced Rudy. I got everybody going, Rudy, Rudy, Rudy. Rudy comes on, delivers his speech. And then when he gets off the stage, people are trying to shake his hands and he, and he walks straight to me and he gives me a bear hug. And he's a really, I mean, I'm short, right? But he's short, he's shorter than me. He gives me this big bear hug and he, and basically, you know, in my ear, he says, that was amazing. You need to do something with that. Really? And then that was in my head. That kept ringing in my ears over and over and over again. Hold on. I want to press pause on that because I think that people, the one good thing about COVID is that people are slowing down a little bit. And I think when somebody gives you a compliment like that, really listen to it. Yes. I've had some great leaders who have given me kudos or compliments around something and if they hadn't shared that with me, I don't think I would have realized that 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 was my strength. So I think it's so important to slow down and listen to those, but it's also important to give those out to people when you recognize a gift that somebody has because it opened up it opens up a window. I think people also need encouragement. I was speaking at a at an event back in February in Nashville, and a young man came up to me and said, "Man, I just want to be you. I want to do what you do." And he goes, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm working on it. He goes, you know, I'm, I'm, I got a five-year plan. I said, what's your five-year plan? He goes, well, I'm going to do this for five years and I'm going to start doing what you do. And I said, do you really, really want to be a speaker? And he goes, yeah. And I said, this is what you need to do. I said, you need to go speak. Don't wait five years. The best time to do it is now. I said, there's all kinds of places. There's your local clubs. There's the, there's the, uh, you know, the, there's the, the chamber of commerce. There's Rotary. I said, go speak. If there's four people in the audience, you'd be the best keynote speaker for four people. And then I said, you know, when I first started this, my business, which I didn't set out to be a keynote speaker, I, I set out to build a different type of business. It, it didn't work. Uh, but I, uh, I, I wouldn't speak. To, I would speak to anybody. What was the different type of business that didn't work? I started a, I was going to start an internet business that was going to be an online portal for salespeople. And so many people were going to come there. I was going to sell advertising, you know, online. And with all this traffic and everything, I was going to make internet millions. And I realized about two months into to the project that that was not going to work. So and so you pivoted. A very quickly. So that's after you talked to your wife and yeah. said, hey, we're going to start this? Or was it when I told my wife I was going to spend our life savings building a, 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 a website <laughs> across the dinner table. Seriously? My wife has got looks that can kill. Oh my like God. she can look at so me. So wait, and- <laughs> Jeb. So this business did not start out as sales gravy. It started out as a different business? Well, it started off as sales professionals online. Right. But I mean, it's a little different. Well, I, then I shifted into salesgravy.com. Uh, I got the idea for Sales Gravy at Thanksgiving dinner in 2006. Uh, and I, we, there was a waiter that was pouring you know, gravy on mashed potatoes. And I was like, oh my God, that's what I'm going to call my company, Sales Gravy. So I, you know, I, ran and re- I registered salesgravy.com on Thanksgiving day, 2006. And, and so I, I, but I realized in, in March of 2007 that that wasn't going to work. And I, I pivoted into building an online job board. So I built salesgravy.com. By 2010, we were the market share leader uh, in, uh, on, in job advertising for, for sales jobs. So it was a very niche job board. And, and then in 2009, 2010, I, I, you know, I, started, I, started, I, started, I got my first enterprise level client in 2009. That was uh, uh, ADP. And then I got Verizon right after that and Edward Jones came on and I picked up AT&T and, you know, I started really, I started, I, we started growing really fast. And by 2010, we were, we were number one in our niche. So 
Wait, so hold on. The online, that original business idea did really work. Well, it didn't, the portal didn't work. Okay. The, but, I, but, but selling advertising board. did. And that, yeah, all that was, was I just sat down one day and said, okay, when you were VP in sales, what did you worry about the most? Talent. And I said, the thing I worried about the most was headcount, finding people and losing people. Right. And I said, well, it, you know, I can build that. And I built, you know, I built a subscription-based job board, which at the time, most job boards were you buy a post. Is it still around? Uh, no, I closed the, I closed the job board in November. Of, of 2019 finally okay um we we uh it just wasn't part of our business model anymore it was what happened with was and this is a good a good lesson for entrepreneurs it, you know when i built the job board we were in the middle of an ugly recession so yeah. so for, let's put this in context so first of all who builds a job board in the middle of a recession i don't know <laughs> but i did and uh and i hustled like i i went to like i went to i would get in my car and like, you know, all I can think is like maybe like Colonel Sanders, but I would get in my car and I would go to job fairs. Yeah. And there'd be tons of people at job fairs because there was a lot of unemployment. Sure. I would, I would go to job fairs and I didn't pay to get in. I would crash them and I would go to all of the recruiters and I would go to the recruiters and I would take a flyer in and say, I'm salesgravy.com. You're trying to hire salespeople. Will you post a job here? Here's a coupon for a free job. And I would do that until the security guards would throw me out. And then I would go to the next one and go to the next one. And I got tossed out of one after another, after another, after another, after another. And, and, and like I got my first enterprise client was ADP. I, I met the first ADP recruiter in early 2008. Wow. And then I, and then I, and then I made an, I met another one at the time when we got, when ADP bought a package for their whole company, uh, they, uh, I had 13 recruiters on and, and I took a, it was a huge risk for me because I'm, I'm living on a real, I'm lean. Okay. And these recruiters helped me. They leveled me up in the organization to a vice president who had buying power for an enterprise package. But this person wouldn't work with me unless I flew to Chicago. So at the time, I'm like, I can't, I can't afford a plane ticket. I'm trying to build a business. I'm, you know, I lost money in, you know, from 2006 all the way into until September of 2009. And this is in August of 2009. And I'm, I'm losing money, losing money, losing money. And so I bought a plane ticket basically with my last amount of money, wow. got on a plane, went to Chicago, closed the deal, and all of a sudden, everything in my world took off. And so by the fall of 2010, we're the number one in our niche just because I got that break. And, but, those, but going out and hustling those jobs. But that fair, break took you three years. It took three years of, of hard work yeah. to get there. Yeah. And, but then I realized in the middle of all that, like I really wanted to do, what, what did I really want to do? Why was I in that boat, curled up in a fetal position, a blessed, privileged human being, completely miserable, yeah. but still wasn't doing what I wanted to do. What I really liked to do was what my dream had been in 1992 when I first saw Tony Robbins was, not that I'm a motivational speaker because I'm not. Um, yes, but you are. I wanted to be, you are. Well, I, you know, but I'm not, a, I'm, not I'm, you know, it's not, I'm not like, you know, telling people that, you know, you can change your life right, and all right. those things. I teach people how to sell stuff. But I wanted to train people. I wanted to coach people. I wanted to build a business around that. And I didn't want it to be about me. That's why it's called Sales Gravy, not Jeb Blunt. Mm. And so I, so I started looking at my cash flow and said, to be a speaker, right, to, to do that, I need to have more books. So in 2010, People Buy You, which was the book that put me on the map, launched. That book became a, a, an instant bestseller, great name for the book. I sketched the, the chapters out for that book in 2006 in San Francisco. 
uh, in Chinatown, sitting at a table with one of my friends. And then uh, and a publisher had, was watching the things that I was doing because in the middle of running a job board, I spun up my podcast in 2007, the longest running podcast in sales. We're going to top 21 million downloads this year. Wow. We, um, yeah, we're going to hit a million downloads by the end of the month. So by 30 for the first, just this year so far. So we, we've been, I've been podcasting since 2007, was writing books and my phone rang and, uh, it was Lauren who was my editor at the time from John Wiley and Sons. We've been watching what you're doing and we want you to come do a book with us. So I did people by you and then I've, and I've been with Wiley ever since. And so we're, for those listening, Wiley is a big publisher. Yes. So most people wait in line for a publisher. So people come to me and say, well, how do I get a publisher? And I got lucky. They called me, but that was because I was out there doing things, building a platform. At the same time, I'm running a job board essentially by myself. Like it's just me. So I'm working 23 hours. When I say 23, 24 hours a day, I'm literally working all day long. And then I'm working with my developers in India at night and, and holding a big job board together is really tough. There's a lot of technical things that go in it. Plus I'm the customer service person. I'm the mm-hmm. salesperson. And, and at the time I had like four different email addresses and I had four different personas. Like my customer service person was named Bill. So when you <laughs> dealt with me, I would be Bill. And you know, the salesperson was Jeb. And then my, you know, my enterprise account person was Elaine Miller. Like I had all these different people. Elaine never talked to people because I don't sound like Elaine, but <laughs> Yeah, right. And um and like I because I had created this this whole world of all these people that worked for me that were that were all just me. Yeah. But I di- I didn't want people to think that I was a one man band in this situation because I'm dealing with really big companies. Like I've got some of the That's biggest amazing. companies in the world That's... that are buying advertising from Sales Gravy. And and it was in 2010 that my wife basically quit her job. She was a shrink and she quit what she was doing. And started come and came to work for me. And uh, today she's my CFO and an integral part of the business. And but she uh, she just like I, she started looking at me. So she put an office upstairs in our house. Um, we left Florida, moved back to Georgia because we had to start hiring people, and we we had we had failed miserably at hiring people who would stick around in Florida. Mm. So we came back to our hometown where we're from. And our, our original people that we hired when we came here, when we came back here in yeah. 2010, are still with us. And, and I got to work with some of them and they are awesome. They are. Today we have 23 people on our team. Uh, and we are before the, before the wheels came off this economy. So we'll see what happens on the other side. Mm. But before the wheels came off on this economy, you know, we're, we're tracking to be a $25 million company. You, you know, every financial dream that I ever had has come true. I'm, I'm even in this, even in this particular, you know, situation we're in with COVID, and the you know the economy and a tailspin carrying our fine because we we never lived we've always continued to live lean yeah. and run our lives in a very lean and austere way. So we really if you know if we just quit working the two of us we've probably got 10, 15 years of just savings that we could just live on and we'd be okay. Now we're not doing that. We're you know we're we're working really hard and in fact we've had the biggest month of our of our of our whole company and e-learning. And we're still selling like crazy and still working on it. Not a single one of my people will miss a paycheck. Not one of them. Everybody's going to get paid all the way through this, no matter what happens, because we've done all the right things in our business to make sure that 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 will happen. 
But if you think about where we are today, all the planning we've done, we made a $500,000 investment last year in a studio complex. I'm sitting in one of our studios now so we can deliver online and virtual training and even, right. even virtual keynotes. On our, we have a 48-foot green screen so we can live keynotes. We did all that in anticipation that a, a recession was coming, but because of, the, what, of what we went through building the business. There are years I don't even remember, Sarah. I mean, we worked so hard that I, I didn't sleep. But because of all of that, we built a strong business that has the capacity to get through this and keep all of our talented people intact so everybody's good and, and we'll come out on the other side and we're going to be like a phoenix. I mean, we're going to be so much stronger on the other side of this because these little, these little hiccups in the, you know, in the economy, uh, as a friend of mine said the other day ago, you know, the tide's going out and we're about to find out all the people who've been swimming naked. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, first of all, I love how you say naked because it's so amazing. <laughs> and uh, that was an amazing quote. So we're getting to the end of our time. Is there anything that you want to close with? Yeah, I think that the, if you're, if you're listening to this, whether you want to be an entrepreneur or be in sales, I, I, I want to go back to what you said earlier. And it was about confidence that, that people lack confidence. And what I want to say to anyone who's listening is that's okay. It's just natural. When I started my business, I had no confidence at all. I had a dream. I had a desire. I, I didn't even really know exactly what I wanted. I just knew that there was something on the other side of the rainbow. And what I was willing to do was sacrifice my sleep, my time, my money, everything in order to reach that dream. As I, as I moved towards that dream, there became, I got, I got clearer and clearer on exactly what it was going to be. I mean, where I am today is com I have complete clarity on where we are. And, you know, I pinch myself because I get to do the thing that I love the most. But I didn't have that when I started. I didn't walk in the door and say, I, everything is in place. I certainly didn't have confidence. I had confidence in me. I had confidence that whether it was a down economy or a good economy, that I have, I have got enough hustle in me that I, will, I can outwork anybody and that I will show up and get it done. I had that confidence, but I was scared to death. I was insecure. And there are days now when I'm still insecure. And, but, I, but I was able to push through that because I knew what I wanted, right? I, I knew what I desired. And if you have that type of a dream and now we're, we're just, we're in one of those lulls, we're in those, one of those dips, this is a great time for introspection. It's a great time for self-awareness. It's a great time to think about what's important to you, what makes you happy. Even now in my own business, I'm reassessing what do I do every day and is it really contributing to my happiness that you can do the same thing and don't worry about being confident Confidence comes with experience. Confidence comes with trying. Confidence comes with doing. Confidence comes with, with, uh, with momentum. And the last thing I'll say, Sarah, is that a lot of people right now in this particular situation, and no matter where we are, there's always going to be a cycle. There's a cycle of scarcity, a cycle of renewal, a cycle of growth, and a cycle of abundance. Mm -hmm. That's how the world works, right? So we're, we have entered, we've entered a cycle of scarcity, and that's okay. But in a cycle of scarcity, things tend to slow down, and you have time to think. If you're in this situation, what a lot of people are saying is I'm confused. Well, confusion is a problem and you need to stop being confused. I mean, you need to just wipe confusion out of your brain. Don't, don't succumb to that because confusion is the enemy of determination. It's the enemy of action. It's the enemy of mo momentum. So, so instead of thinking, oh, I'm confused, 
What confused, if you think about confused, confuses deer in the headlights. What happens when there's a deer in the headlights? The deer gets run over by a car. So right. confusion is going to get you run over. So stop that immediately and sit down and think about a path that you can take. It's a path that will lead you someplace. And then just like my story, when you get to a fork in the road, take one. Love it. Jeb, I cannot thank you enough for taking time out of your busy day. I mean, seriously, I really am so, so grateful. And that's a wrap, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. I want to thank everyone behind the scenes, especially Adrian Donica and the team at Gwyn Sound. Also, please find us on social media outlets at Fail Forward Pod.